text that we're going to look at right now is kind of, is about seven to ten days of what these people were up to while they're waiting uh, for Jesus uh, to, uh, for the next, uh, the next uh, part in Jesus' plan that was there. So what were the disciples and these other people up to, and why was that important? That's what I hope to discuss with you this morning. But let's read the text. Acts chapter 1, verse 12 says this. And they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers." In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Al-Kadama, or however you choose to pronounce that, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, quote, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And, quote, let another take his office. So, One of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and Lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So here's what they did. This is what I hope to discuss today. I hope to discuss, to tell you what they did in these seven to ten days is that they obeyed by waiting, they devoted themselves to prayer, and they made wise decisions. That's going to frame our discussion. They obeyed by waiting, they devoted themselves to prayer, and they made wise decisions. Let me pause and ask God's blessing as I discuss this text. Father, you know, this is your word. We didn't write it. We don't own it. Uh, We claim no authority over it. Rather, the Word claims authority on us. And so I pray that as we discuss it right now, that I would communicate in a way that's helpful. I pray that the things that I say would be accurate and true and faithful to the text here. Spirit of God, we pray that you would guide our thinking and our listening and our hearing and our understanding and my communication. So thank you for this opportunity to look at this text, and we do pray that it would be helpful to those who are listening, whether in person or in another room or uh, across, the, across the world through the internet. So we're grateful for your mercy. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. First of all, in 
they uh, obeyed by waiting. And, and honestly, if you're going to be, if you're one that constantly looks for slides, I'm just going to disappoint you today is that I've got slides for the main points and that is it today. Okay. So don't be, keep looking at the screen, hoping that something else is going to come up unless there's some miraculous intervention that I do not know about. The only thing that's going to be on the screen are the main points. Okay. So first of all, they obeyed by waiting. You see, one of the reasons why I know that they waited is because Luke at the end of the gospel, uh, he records along with then in the beginning of this book, uh, he overlaps and records it twice, that Jesus commanded them to wait. He commanded the disciples to wait. We saw this, that he says that you must wait uh, in Jerusalem, and he says that uh, this will be, uh, he told them in verse 4, not to depart from Jerusalem, and he promises that there's going to be this empowerment that's going to come upon them. And so now they're waiting for this. They're waiting for the special enabling power. We read in the text there that they return to Jerusalem from the Olivet, from Mount of Olives, where they had been. I've been there. I've been on the Mount of Olives, and I've made the journey to Jerusalem. It's really not a very far walk at all. We're told here, Luke tells us, that it was a Sabbath day's journey. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a Sabbath day's journey? Well, let me help you out with that. It's about 2,000 cubits. Does that help you? All right. All right. What this means is it was the amount of distance that was considered lawful for someone to travel on the Sabbath. Because in the Old Testament law, there were certain limitations of what people could do on the Sabbath. And one of them was the amount of distance that they could travel. And it depends on uh, which uh, Jewish tradition document that you read. There's some uh, leadway on this and different reasons for the distance. Some say it was the distance between the people of Israel and the Ark of the Covenant when they crossed over the Red Sea. Some people say that it was uh, actually just the distance from one end of uh, the town to the other. Uh, really, the, the, it doesn't, we don't really know, but all that matters is that it was somewhere between about a half of a mile to three quarters of a mile. And this was a short walk. It didn't take them long at all to walk from the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem. So they go back to Jerusalem, and they're waiting in an upper room, it says here in the text. We don't know much about this upper room. There's lots of theories on this. Uh, some people think that this may have been uh, John Mark's mother's uh, house. We don't know, but you have to understand the, the, the way houses were set up in, in this time. Uh, a lot of these houses, they had a large living quarters that was on the top level of the house, and this would be a large open area, a large open room uh, with very minimal furnishings uh, so that the large people could, or larger groups could gather there and have a, a meeting. Uh, sometimes it was used even as guest quarters. And so people, if they were staying for a, an extended period of time, they would have a, a large room upstairs where they could just kind of own the upstairs. It's kind of like when we go to my parents' house, uh, we move in, we take over the upstairs. There's a couple of bedrooms up there, there's a bathroom up there, and we just kind of own the upstairs uh, for the time that we're there. This would have been in this case. We don't know exactly which upper room this was, but what we do know is that it had to be large enough to host about 120 people because we know from reading our text that that's what the crowd grows to in size to about 120 people. But don't let that fool you because they were not really concerned about social distancing then, okay? And so they packed people in pretty tight there. So it just had to be a decent sized room and this is where they were while they were waiting. 
I'm saying that they're obeying while they're waiting here. And this was important to them um, because it is difficult to wait. But notice who's there. Notice who is in the room. We have the 11 disciples. Obviously, Judas is not there because he uh, has killed himself and he is no longer present. Uh, but then we have, it says in verse 14, uh, with the women. Uh, Luke is very careful to record, both in his gospel and also in the book of Acts, the role of women. Uh, we see that the, it was Jesus who first appeared to women in the resurrection at the, te- at the tomb. We see that it was women who brought the message to the disciples. And, and, and we see that as they're praying and they're praying a, 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 while they're waiting for the resurrection to happen, women come to the disciples and say, um, uh, hey, this has happened, and they don't believe them. And so women play a, a, a crucial role in this text and in this story of Jesus. And so we know that there was women who, who followed Jesus in his earthly ministry. A lot of times we get the, the notion that it was just 12 guys following Jesus around. But if you look at the Gospels carefully, you'll find that no, it was more than 12. And, and in fact, that number sometimes was larger and sometimes it was smaller. We know that some that it turned and no longer walked with Jesus. And Jesus then turned to Peter and says, are you going to no, uh, turn away as well? There was other people following him. But there was women who were following Jesus. Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. But there's one particular woman here that Luke counts for, and that's Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is the last time we hear of her in the New Testament. And here she is, she's in the upper room, praying, waiting for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful thing to see a mother who is continuing to pray concerning her son. And so, her, so we have Mary here, and then we have his brothers. These are his, his half-brothers, if you will. This is one of the, the several places in Scripture where we see that Jesus did indeed have half-siblings. Um, and, uh, and so there's brothers here. It's significant that we know that from the Gospels that his brothers didn't believe in him. We know that it was significant that they actually thought that he was out of his mind, the gospel writers say. They, t- they tried to take him by force away from teaching publicly because they thought that he was crazy with some of the things he was saying. But something happened. Something happened where it changed their mind and they believed, and that was the resurrection. And so even in these short little sentences here, there's so much that Luke tells us of what's happened. And this is one of the reasons why I love the book of Acts is because it fills in the gaps and it, and it it fills in the question marks and shows us what uh, has happened here. Now Jesus' brother has believed. But what are they doing here? They're waiting, right? And they're obeying by waiting. They're sitting there and they're waiting. And as I said just a second ago, perhaps the hardest command to obey is the command to wait. No one likes to wait, right? I read a story about the Houston airport of how that they were uh, dealing with many complaints about how long it took to get the bags uh, from when, when passengers would get off the plane, they'd have to go to the carousel, and you know it, you've done it, you've sat there, and you've just waited for the little light to start flashing, the thing to start moving, and then you wait for an eternity for your bag to come, right? And so there was getting lots of complaints of how long it took them to get their bags, and so what they did is they took, they hired additional personnel and they, they got it so that the timing was down to eight minutes from the time the plane, uh, uh, you know, uh, went to their, their gate, uh, parked, uh, to the time the bags were on the carousel was eight minutes. And it was, it was uh, industry setting time, but they still were getting complaints. 
And so they figured out something. They figured out that uh, they tried one other thing, and that was they moved the distance between where the plane was uh, 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 parked into the carousel. They moved it so they made people have to, have to uh, walk a long distance to get there. And so what they did is they took a seven-minute walk to get there, and so then the people only had to wait. Guess, wait one minute. Guess what happened? Complaints plummeted and went down to nothing. And so what, it, what that showed was that it showed that it really wasn't the amount of time that people had to wait. It was that they were unoccupied. You give them something to do and they no longer cared about waiting anymore. Because unoccupied time, tends to, we tend to get very restless with. But here is what Jesus told them to do. Go and wait. It doesn't tell them to do anything. He says, go and wait. You see, that's a very difficult command for us to obey, but it's one that we must obey because God routinely asks his servants to wait. Abraham was told to wait, right? He gets the promise of a son. Did it happen right away? No, he had to wait a long time. Jacob had to wait for uh, Rebecca, right? A couple, first seven years and then another seven years, right? And then we have Joseph who had to wait multiple times to get vindicated for doing the right thing. And then even when he interprets dreams, if you read about this in the Old Testament, and the other people in prison with him, uh, he says, okay, tell them, tell, tell them about me. And they forget about him. And so he has to wait again. And so Joseph is constantly having to wait. David is promised a kingdom and he has to wait for that as well. All throughout the Bible, God's people are told to wait. And it builds trust. It builds faith. It builds this idea of contemplation uh, into our lives. There's, there's a couple other people that were told to wait though or that had to wait, and that was Jesus. Have you considered this? Jesus was born, but then he waited about 30 years to start his earthly ministry. 30 years Jesus waited. He waited until the time was right. In fact, there was a couple times where he says, you know, this isn't the right time. And he waited until the Father's plan was ready. He waited until that time, as the gospel writers say, when the fullness of time had come. And so we see that Jesus had to wait. But there's one other person that also was waiting with Jesus. And that was Mary. That was his mother. She was waiting for vindication, right? Think about this. All the stories, all the things and all the things that must have been said about her when she showed up pregnant. And, and there's no rational explanation for this all the whispering and all that. And, and then the stories came out, well, the child that she was was going to be the Messiah. And then he grows up to be a teenager and then nothing's happening. Now he's in his early 20s. Nothing's happening. He gets to 30 years old and finally, but she waited a long time. Here's my point in this. God often asks us to wait. And we don't know all the reasons for it, but whatever he is asking you to wait in, whether it's you're in a financial strain right now or waiting for the results of a test or you're waiting for uh, relationship difficulties to be overcome or health challenges or job insecurities, whatever it is that God is asking you to wait right now, understand that you are not alone. And that sometimes just waiting for the Lord to reveal the next step is exactly what he wants you to do. Now, I struggle with this because I'm a man that, that doesn't like to sit still, okay? I, I'm one of those people that, that like to be busy, right? And that's difficult for a lot of us. But God has asked us to wait. 
So this is what they were doing. First of all, and this is going to be the longer part of the sermon, uh, so you don't have to worry that it's going to go super long in the next two points. But the second point, not only did they uh, obey while they waited, they devoted themselves to prayer. You see this here in the text of verse 14, and all of them with one accord. There's a sense of unity there. They were devoting themselves to prayer. Later on in chapter 2, we're going to see that this is going to be a mark of the early church, that they devoted themselves to prayer. So the main activity while they were waiting, while they were obeying through waiting, was prayer. This was something that united them, as you see. It was with one accord. And prayer is so important. This is the reason why we're asking you to share prayer requests. This is one of the reasons why we encourage you to pray for one another. This is one of the reasons why, and most times in my weekly email that I send out to the church, I usually end it with some sort of encouragement to be praying for each other. Because this is what unites us, is when we're praying together, when we're praying with each other, when we're praying for each other. And so right now, there's a lot of people who are in a time of waiting, right? And, and we're, we're trying to figure out what the next step is. And, and we, we don't know what, what the world's going to look like. We don't know, you know whether or not to, we're going to continue working remotely for the rest of our lives or we're going to go back to an office or something. And, and all these things, we're, we're waiting to see what's going to happen. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But let me encourage you that during this time of waiting, be devoted to prayer. You know, make, make, make sure that you are spending time praying to God. This is what these people were doing during this time. I believe it's instructive to us. Yes, it's descriptive of telling us what they did, but later on we just see that this is a pattern that we're supposed to be doing of praying. I, I appreciate Martin Luther and several of the things that he said about prayer. Let me just share a few of some of his quotes. He said, pray and let God worry. <laughs> Of course, God doesn't worry, and Luther knew that. But he's just saying, basically, let God deal with it. You pray, let God worry about it. He also said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. He says, as oxygen is to our human bodies, prayer is to our spiritual lives, is what he's saying. He says, as is the business of tailors to make clothes and cobblers to make shoes, So let me say that again. As is the business of tailors to make clothes and cobblers to make shoes, so it is the business of Christians to pray. This should be just what we do, devoted to it. But sometimes you say, man, I just don't have time. I just don't have the time to spend in prayer like I really want to. I mean, things are going, business is crazy, family responsibilities, all these type of things. I get that. Luther has a quote for that as well. He says, If I fail to spend two hours in prayer each morning, the devil gets the victory through the day. I have so much business, I cannot get on without spending three hours daily in prayer. (laughs) Okay? Now, I'm not advocating that everyone has to spend three hours in prayer. That's not my point. But my point is is that being busy should never be an excuse to fail to pray here. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves as we're wrestling through this is, do we tend to remember to pray more in times of comfort or more in times of difficulty? I think the answer is obvious that in times of difficulty is when we are prompted to pray more often. And so could this be one of the reasons why God incorporates trials into our lives? And so it's to send us back to the one, the only one, who can give true joy and true satisfaction in our lives. 
And so this is what these people did. They were waiting. They're obeying God. They're obeying Jesus' command. And they're devoting themselves to prayer. And they're, they're asking God for his uh, a blessing. They're asking God for his illumination and, his, and his, uh, uh, his, his will to be done. And so we should be constantly praying. And to be sure, there should be long times of uninterrupted prayer, you know, like Luther was describing. Sure, we should have times where we just spend and we, we block out uh, uh, several moments of where we can just spend time praying. Of course, that is to be true. But also, there should be short prayers throughout the day. Prayers of worship and gratefulness. Prayers asking for enablement as you go throughout the day. So think about your day, think about how you spend your day, and then think about how often you go back to prayer. Think about how often you, you talk to God and you, and you say thank you for something, or you're asking for advice, or you're asking for guidance on something. This is the mark of a believer, and these are what these people, they were devoting themselves to, and it brings unity as the church does this. Again, I'll go back to the example of Jesus. He understood the importance of prayer, did he not? In his earthly ministry, did he, he often withdrew to solitude to pray to the Father. In John 17, it's a beautiful text. I'm not going to take time to go there, but you might want to read it sometime. In John 17, there's this beautiful prayer that Jesus is praying to the Father right before he's betrayed and right before he's going to go to the cross and die. And, and he's praying to the Father, and he's just having this beautiful interchange and uh, in, in, uh, conversation with the Father. In the garden, of course, after he was betrayed, and the reality of what was happening was setting full and pressing full upon him and his earthly body and understanding. And, and as he was praying, he says, Father, if there be any other way, let it be so. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, he was a man of prayer. Jesus was. It's often cited how that when Jesus combated temptation in the, in the wilderness when the devil was tempting him, uh, he responded with scripture and prayer. And so the point is this, is that Jesus understood the importance of prayer. If we were to see prayer as a privilege to enjoy rather than a duty to perform, we would find the key to unlock the difficulty surrounding prayer. It's a privilege to enjoy. It's not a duty to perform. And see, that's our problem is that we think, oh man, I need to pray or I should pray, something like that, or I need to pray more. You know, if you ever want to make someone feel guilty, you know, you can just ask them about, you know, are you praying enough? And everyone's going to say no, of course, because we look at it more of a duty rather than a privilege that we have to speak with the God of heaven, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so if I could just impress upon us today as, we, as we're thinking about what these people did in these 10 days, seven to 10 days while they're waiting for Pentecost to come, they prioritize prayer. And we find ourselves in a time of waiting as well. Can you please prioritize prayer? Pray with each other. Pray for each other. And spend time praying often. So as I know that, as I said, we're waiting for things to get back to normal. But in several years from now, when we look back on this time in our lives, I wonder, will you see that this was a time that you were devoted to prayer? This is a beautiful opportunity for us to Spend time praying. I need to move on. We have two uh, things that we've already talked about here that the disciples and the people who were here were doing in these seven to 10 days. They were uh, uh, obeying through waiting, which is difficult. It's difficult to wait, but God asks us to wait because it builds our trust and it builds our reliance on him. And we get some clarity that sometimes we wouldn't have if we didn't have that time of waiting. We see that they were devoted to prayer. But then finally, they made wise decisions. 
This is verse 15, right? Peter stands up. And, and first of all, before I go on, I mean, look at, look at the, 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 the leadership of Peter here, okay? I mean, who is this guy? The last time we really heard about him, again, this is why I love Acts. It fills in the gaps. The last time we heard about him, he had denied Jesus three times, right? And he says, okay, and he's so, he's so ashamed. He's so undone with his denials of God that, that he says, I'm going to go, and I'm going to go fishing. And then Jesus appears to him on the beach, and, and he calls him, and he dives into the water, swims to Jesus, and, and they have a little breakfast there on the, on the beach there. And then Jesus has a very short conversation with him. But that's about it. I mean, there's, you know, three times Jesus asks him, do you love me? And he says, yes, I love you. He says, well, feed my sheep. And do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. Well, yeah. Do you love me? Yes, feed my lamb. And so he has this conversation, and then the, it just ends there. And if we didn't have Acts, then the only thing we could do is go to the two letters that Peter wrote, and we'd be wondering if this was the same guy. But here, Acts fills in the gaps for us, and we see that Peter has been transformed by the resurrected Jesus Christ. And he leads them in making some wise decisions here, and it's about replacing Judas. I need to take just a second to explain this, though, of why Judas needed to be replaced. Um, This was not because some form of apostolic succession needed to be maintained. We know that's not not the case because later on in uh, Acts, we're going to see an apostle that is going to be killed. Uh, James is going to be killed. Spoiler alert, we'll get there. Uh, But he is going to be killed, and there's no move to replace James after he's killed. And so it's not so much that there's always just a succession of apostles. There must have been another reason for this, and it really was because the start of the church was going to happen here in the next chapter. In Matthew 19, it says this, you know, Peter's talking to Jesus, and he says, see, we have left everything, and we followed you. What then will we have? What a question to ask Jesus. He says, we've left everything and, and, and we followed you. And so, so what are we going to get out of this? Is what he says. Jesus says to him, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so we know that there's a, there's a, there's a, a reason why at the beginning, at the start of the church, there needs to be 12 apostles here. It's because that there, this is going to have a place in the future. Revelation talks about this in 21 and verse 14, describing, it says, in the wall, the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And so this was something probably Jesus had communicated this them in one of his teachings between the resurrection and the ascension. We know that Jesus taught often with this, that there needed to be a replacement here. And Peter is leaving, leading the way in this. It was because they needed to have someone be the, a, a ministry of being a witness to Jesus' resurrection. The church is going to be starting. A new society is going to be for, formed here called the church. And they needed to have these 12 foundation stones in place because that's the way Jesus set it up. So this is why Judas needed to be replaced. Parenthetically, I'll just say this, that some people will argue that maybe the Apostle Paul should have been in this place and that somehow this was a mistake here of choosing Matthias. That's just ridiculous. It's not the case that the, the qualifications set up 
in here, Paul does not meet. It says that they had to be with Jesus uh, 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 and be a witness to his resurrection, which Paul was that because he did see a resurrected Jesus. But if you notice in the text here, it says that it was someone who accompanied Jesus from the time the Lord Jesus, as verse 21, went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. Paul doesn't make that fit that qualification here. And so they needed someone that would fill that qualification to uh, replace Judas here. So I'm going to talk about how they made that decision here in just a second here. But you saw when I read, it says they cast lots for him. Verse 26. What's with the casting of lots? Well, it was an Old Testament method for determining the mind of God. It was sanctioned. Um, Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 16.33. It was a way that sometimes uh, uh, things were written on stones or sticks and put into a bag or something, and then one was either drawn out or one was shaken out, and whatever one fell out, that was to be determined what God's mind was on that matter. But uh, interestingly enough, this is the last time we ever see lots being talked about in the New Testament. We don't have another example of this, and I believe that's because the Spirit of God is going to come in the next chapter, and we're no longer going to need these type of things for decision-making in uh, finding the, the mind of God in it. But that's the idea of this. This was uh, a way that they understood to, to, to see who um, was, uh, uh, was to take Judas's place here. But notice this. Look at the text again, and it says when they're praying, it says, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. Verse 24. Show us which one of these two you have chosen. So they understood here that what they were doing was they were not voting on something. They were simply trying to find the will and mind of God on it. So how do they, how do they make this decision wisely? Let me move this quickly and then we'll bring it to a close and celebrate at the table. First of all, they consulted scripture. So this would be a way for us to, to kind of form a way that we can think through how to make good decisions, consult scripture Peter here refers to Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 in this, and uh, we know that he had conversations with Jesus in the teaching. And so we think that during Jesus' teaching time, and we think here that this is what Paul, excuse me, Peter was saying as he was uh, discussing with Jesus, and then as he's studying, as he's praying, as he's waiting in the upper room, this is something that the scriptures then say, okay, this is something we need to do here, and it's based on scripture. And so as we're trying to make decisions, we should always be funneling all of our options through the filter of scripture. What principles in the scripture are going to guide us in our thinking? What principles of, in the scriptures are going to help us make good and wise decisions? It, it, it's, we should never make decisions based solely upon what we think is best or, or solely upon what uh, uh, we want to do. No, we must always go through the filter of Scripture. This is, this is what they did, and it's a great example for us to follow here. They consult the Scripture. There's another thing that they did that was helpful in making a wise decision is that they used common sense, okay? They used common sense. How do I get that? Well, they, they, they put out the qualifications, most likely given to them by Jesus, and they, they put them out, and it appears that there's only two people that can meet these qualifications. 
They didn't try to wiggle someone else in there or anything. They said, here's the common sense. There's two people that they can do this. We're going to put them before you, and we're going to see who the one that Jesus has chosen for this. Like I said, um, it appears that only two men met those qualifications. I've already told you why the Apostle Paul would not have met this qualification. And so it just came to Barsabas and Matthias. These are the only two people that could have been chosen for this because they're the only two people around them that met those qualifications. So it wasn't anything special. It was just common sense. If you want a good short book to read on making good decisions, let me just encourage you to read Kevin DeYoung's Just Do Something. And he talks about this idea of common sense. It talks this idea of how God uses that and that we shouldn't, uh, uh, we shouldn't abandon that in our decision-making process. So uh, Just Do Something by Kevin DeYoung. Highly encourage you to read that book. But there's one other thing that they did when making wise decisions. They consult the scripture. They use common sense. They, they spent time praying. You see this. This is what they did. This is kind of the theme of this section of scripture here in verse 24. And they prayed. And they said, the Lord, you know who you have chosen here. And so this was something they recognized that they weren't trying to vote on something. They were simply trying to recognize the one who has done the choosing here. And they used the means that was available to them at the time. And so the question that we need to wrestle with as we bring this message to a close is how do you make decisions? Are you running the options through the filter of Scripture? Uh, when you're trying to figure out what college to go to or maybe a relocation for a job, does the idea of is there a faith family, a faith community, a church family there that you can plug into, does that, does that enter your thinking at all? There's been many times where there's, you know, people will ask me, they'll accept a job offer or a college or something like that. And then they'll say, hey, can you help me find a church in that area? And sometimes I'm like, I think that this is backwards. I think, I think we should have been asking that question first. And so are we thinking through all those type of things? Um, are we using common sense? The reason why I say that is because we can rationalize any decision. We, we, can, we can make a, any case to make the decision that we want to do. And this is why it's important to involve other people in our decision-making process, because sometimes we need their common sense. We need them to help us think things through. And so here's a clue. If you're reluctant to talk with others about a decision you want to do, chances are it's a bad decision. And so there's, there's, you know, we got to be uh, inviting other people to speak truth into us and then are we praying and inviting others to pray with us? You see, this descriptive passage here of what these people were doing in these seven to ten days, I believe we can take some uh, uh, lessons from. We obey through waiting, and we pray, and we make wise decisions. So as we live this next week, let us, let us, let us be making wise decisions through the filter of Scripture and through prayer and common sense. And let us be willing to wait, and let us be united in prayer. You know, we're going to have Lord's Supper here in just a second here, and uh, in a minute I'm going to be praying, and if there's anyone in the gym and they want to start making their way up, they can do that um, But uh, to join us here. But let me just say a couple things about the, the, the table as, as we do that. You know, this table will remind us of several things that we've talked about, Okay. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. We're waiting. Right now, we're waiting. We're told to wait. I don't know about you, but I would love for Jesus to come back today. But we're waiting. 
We're waiting for that day. And the table here, what we're going to eat and drink together here in just a second, is a reminder that we are in a waiting process. It's a reminder that there is grace to be found while we wait. Okay? So let that truth just resonate in your soul as we eat and drink together. It also drives us to prayer. We talked about the importance of prayer. The table drives us to pray to God in thankfulness of what he's done for us, right? And then there's this idea of the table puts life into perspective for us. And so it helps us make decisions in a much better way as we understand what truly is important in life. And so at this table, let us let us just remember and let us worship God in this idea of that, that we're waiting for something to come, but there's grace while we wait. It's not abandonment. Great God, Jesus has not abandoned us here, and the table is a reminder of that. And so while we wait, we pray, and we make the best decisions we can until he comes back. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll uh, stand, and uh, musicians will lead us in some singing. And uh, uh, what we'll do is uh, we'll have people... Uh, come over on the side over here and, and come up to the, the table. We'll be breaking the bread, putting those little cups there. And then uh, Michael will be having the juice over there and we'll be putting it on the table. And you can just pick it up right off the table as you come by. Once, you know, one section kind of gets through, then the other section, and then finally, uh, then we'll eat and, and drink together. Uh, there's some seats open in the front here. And so if people need, uh, coming from the gym, need a place to stand, there's some seats right here that would be fine or off to the side or something. So let's pray and, and then we'll stand and, uh, and then we'll sing. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can worship you through the Lord's table. And Father, we do pray that um, as we eat and drink together here now, we pray that you would receive all glory and honor. And Father, I pray that as we consider this idea of, of us waiting, Father, I pray that we would be um, uh, understanding that there's grace to be found while we wait here. And uh, you have not abandoned us. And so while we wait, uh, we pray that you would receive honor and draw our, our, our minds and hearts towards you. In Christ's name, amen.